Take your Bibles and turn with me to what is a favorite book in the Bible for many of you, perhaps, the book of James. I want to start a series this morning on the book of James. I've entitled Kingdom Living, Possessing a Faith as Real on Monday Morning as on Sunday Morning. And uh, this morning, I want to read for us in verses 1 through 12, and we're going to cover the subject this morning, Facing Trials God's Way. Facing Trials God's Way. Now, let me encourage you, if you're looking at that sermon notes page this morning, you'll notice I've put a lot of print on the page that I don't intend for you to be reading right now. I've given you some background points as we get into this study and the first message. There's only three bold points that you really need to worry about this morning, but I've just given you the extra that you can take home this week and read for yourself and become a little more acquainted with this book. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Facing Trials, God's Way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Father, we're so grateful today for your plan with us, plans for good and not for evil, the Scripture tells us, for us to be saved and conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we know that in this life there are many valleys, not only mountain peaks, you you take us to those, but many valleys as well that we face. But one thing the child of God can be assured of is you're with him every step of the way. We thank you today for that. That Jesus, when he left, he promised to send another who would never leave us alone as orphans, but he would be our comforter and our teacher. As King David said in Psalm 23:1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We're grateful for that leadership today. 
Father, we're grateful for those trials and tribulations that You've taken us through from what we learn from those. I may be speaking to somebody today in the midst of a trial and I pray that their lives would be submissive and yielded before You. That this message might offer encouragement and hope and instruction for them. And God, I pray today that somebody who doesn't know Christ in a personal way might come to know Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know many of you love to listen to Dr. David Jeremiah on the radio. And uh, in Dr. David Jeremiah's book, Turning Toward Integrity, he has a great illustration Uh, off of the pages of the military that I want to open with this morning. He says, and I quote, They came up to this uh, ensign and poured a glass of water down his back and threw another in his face. The ensign, who had fallen asleep in the chow hall after five sleepless nights, opened his eyes for a second just long enough to utter a dull, Thank you, sir. A moment later, his eyes rolled upward and then closed. His head went down again. He didn't touch his meal. It's called Hell Week. And it's part of the Navy's basic underwater demolition school where sailors are turned in to SEALs. Sea, air, land commandos. By undergoing a grueling regimen of sleepless days and nights, sensory overload, and physical testing, these men are transformed into some of the toughest human beings in all the world. The process begins at the Coronado Naval Base in San Diego, California. The class begins in October with a 300-yard swim, and the physical regimen becomes increasingly difficult as it builds to the ultimate challenge known as Hell Week. This final period of physical and mental torture begins on Sunday night. Lights flash on as the recruits are awakened by an instructor. Next to one ear, a machine gun with blanks is fired. A jet from a garden hose is digging into the other ear. An instructor shouts, we have a mission to perform this evening. I want you to listen to every detail I have for you. The mission turns out to be exercising and lying wet and almost naked on cold steel plates installed on a nearby pier. On Monday, the six-man teams are ordered to run races with a 250-pound Zodiac rubber assault boat on their heads. Tuesday, with less than an hour of sleep the night before, they have to row those Zodiac boats to Mexican waters and back a trip of 18 miles. Because of sleep deprivation, many of the trainees confess to drifting in and out of consciousness throughout the trip. Back at the base, most students learn to sleep while eating. On Wednesday, the men continue the races with boats bouncing on their heads, their combat boots sinking in the soft sand. That evening, they run again. At midnight, they're ordered to lie naked in the cold, pounding surf. 
Remember, it's October. Every ten minutes during the night, they're made to stand up to get the full effect of the wind. After the surf torture, the chance to disenroll awaits each student. All he has to do is to ring a certain bell three times and simply say, I quit. By Thursday, everyone is hallucinating. By Friday afternoon, the week is over and the new seals are lined up to be checked by a doctor. By pushing these men to the very brink of insanity during times of peace, the Navy is giving them the best chance for survival should war break out and they find themselves in a desperate situation. Now folks, as we begin looking at this first chapter in the book of James, James is reminding his suffering brothers and sisters in Christ that they should not be surprised at all by tough times of testing. Because through that testing, God can actually make them stronger and better prepared for the spiritual warfare that we all face in life. Now before getting into that, I want to give you some brief background points on this letter. Now I'm going to leave most of this to you. If you've got a good study Bible, you know in the introduction to each book, what I'm about to say is covered in most of those. If you don't have a good study Bible, you need to go out and buy yourself one. Now there are four, some say three, but three or four James in the New Testament that are possible candidates as being the author of this letter. Now, all, out of all of the candidates, scholars are pretty well agreed that it could have only been one, and that one would be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to remember, after Jesus was born of a virgin, then Joseph and Mary had other children. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment growing up in a home where your older half-brother, Jesus, never did anything wrong. He was the perfect son, the perfect child. Now, James, we know, did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 points out that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and it was after that resurrection appearance that uh, James, the half-brother of, of the Lord, placed his faith in Jesus as his Messiah. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. In fact, a lot of scholars are probably even of the opinion that James' leadership might even have surpassed that of Simon Peter's leadership among the Jewish brethren there in Jerusalem. When they had the big conference in Acts chapter 15 to decide exactly what needed to be included in a gospel presentation to the Gentiles, it was James' words that seemed to carry the day. Now folks, I want you to think about that. That's pretty impressive when you think of who all was there at that conference. Paul says in the book of Galatians that when he journeyed to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and go over what he was teaching, he conferred with James, with Peter, and John. I want you to think about that as well. James was in that group with whom the apostle Paul conferred to make sure he was on the right track. 
Well, we know that James writes to Jewish Christians who have been scattered abroad. In Acts chapter 8, there's a record of persecution that breaks out against the believers right after the stoning of Stephen. And beginning in Acts chapter 8, we see that Christians began spreading out all over the ancient world back then. And we know that those Christians had double trouble. You see, Jews were oftentimes persecuted in many parts of the world, and now they're not only Jews, but they've become Christians as well. And so now they're being persecuted not only by the world, but they're even being persecuted by their countrymen. They had their land seized, they had their businesses shut down, they were facing ridicule and poverty and sometimes even physical abuse. They would have been so discouraged and beat down by life. Now thankfully it's difficult for you and I today to even be able to relate everything that they had to go through. Some of them were tempted to throw in the towel on Christianity and just simply go back home. Now that's the kind of background we need to understand as we get into the book of James. Now very likely the book of James may have been the very first book of our New Testament that was written. Now with all that said, let's get back to chapter 1. Again, I want you to see today that James is reminding his suffering brothers and sisters in Christ that they should not be surprised by times of testing. Through testing, God can actually make us stronger and better prepared for the spiritual warfare that all of us are going to face in life. But folks, as we go through times of testing, as we go through trials and tribulations, we know that we need some resources beyond simply ourselves. We need to equip ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to get ready for some of what we're going to go through in life because we name the name of Christ. I want to give you three things this morning. First of all, we need a new attitude concerning trials. Read with me again verses 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, if you'll stop and just ponder that statement for a moment, I think you would agree with me, that is a pretty, that's a pretty astonishing statement. James is saying rejoice not simply when the sun is out and the temperature is warm and the breeze is blowing gentle on your face, but James is saying rejoice even when your faith is tried. Rejoice even in the bad times of life, the most difficult times of your life. Rejoice. I want you to notice he says when you encounter. He doesn't say if you encounter trials because it's a given that we're going to suffer from time to time. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. And James says when you encounter, the word encounter means to fall into. It is the same Greek word that was used as of the traveler uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He fell among thieves who beat him and stripped him and left him for dead. 
It's the same thought here. We fall into trials. We don't go looking for trials. We don't go asking for trials and seeking them out. We fall into them. And sometimes when we fall into them, we feel like we're stripped and beaten and robbed and left for dead. Then James says various trials. It's the word from which we get our word polka dot. Trials are multifaceted. They don't come in all sizes and shapes and colors. They're different. I want you to remember in the parable Jesus told of the two builders, the wise builder and the foolish builder, Jesus talked about rain that fell on the roof. He talked about winds that blew against the walls. And he talked about floodwaters that rose up on the foundation. And so what James is talking about here is all kinds of different trials, various trials that come to us. Some of them have to do with our relationships. Some of them have to do with our work. Some of them have to do with our families. Some of them have to do with our finances. And others have to do perhaps with our health. Some of you are going through a trial this morning. You're in a deep, dark valley right now. And if you're not, you're probably heading into one. It's been said that all of God's children have problems. You're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go into a trial. And believe it or not, James says, when that happens, consider it nothing but an occasion for pure joy. Add all of those trials up, all of that tribulation up, all of that hardship up, and use it as an occasion for gratitude. Now, why in the world would James say that? Is James some kind of crazy masochist who just loves to see people suffer? No, he says we can be joyful when we realize what God is doing through all of that. Folks, it is not God's purpose in life just to sit up in heaven above. Some people think God just sits up in heaven above and His only job is to give me a nice little sweet comfortable life where I never have to face any trials or hardships. And that's how they look at the Christian life, that I give my heart and life to Christ, and and man, after I do that, God's supposed to make everything just wonderful and hunky-dory for me. But is is that what the Bible says? No. The Bible tells us that God's purpose is to mold us and conform us to the very image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes God does that molding and conforming through trials. We may not like the segment of the journey that we're on right now, but James says if we respond properly, if we put those trials in God's hands, if we put our lives in God's hands, we're going to like where it takes us. We're going to like where we end up. James says God uses trials to produce patience or endurance. That's a compound word. It literally means God is producing a steadfastness in us so that we can bear up under the load. That's what patience here or steadfastness means. God is shaping you and conforming you. He's taking you through all those valleys, all those dark periods of your life, all those bumps and and, and turns in the road. He's conforming you to the image of Christ and He's strengthening you from the inside out so you'll be able to bear up in life whatever comes your way. He's making Navy SEALs out of us, if you will. 
I like what Philip's translation says here. It says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Phillips goes on to say, you will find you become men of mature character, men of integrity with no weak spots. That's picturesque language. Now folks, let's think about some Bible characters a moment who, who went through trials and tribulation in their life. Some of these characters are characters we look back to and they're heroes of the faith. But we don't see that God always gave them an easy life. Let's consider first of all Abraham. Abraham, after all, was called the friend of God. We sang about that at the opening of the service today. He was the friend of God, and yet what did God call Abraham to do? God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 to take Isaac, his beloved son, and go up on that hillside at Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now, God wasn't going to let Abraham go through that, but God was only testing him. And in the midst of that test, when Abraham got up there and he was getting ready to take the life of Isaac, his beloved son, God stopped him and God provided the ram in the thicket and Abraham named that, uh, named God a new name out of that experience. He called him Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Now where did Abraham learn that? Did he learn that in his life when his days were easy? No, he learned Jehovah Jireh through a very difficult period of time in his life, through a very difficult trial. But that's where he learned something about the sufficiency of God. And then there was Jacob. Jacob's name meant deceiver or trickster. You remember what Jacob did. He stole the birthright. He deceived his brother Esau, stole the birthright, and then he had to get on the run because he was afraid of Esau. And when he was coming back one day to meet Esau and try to reconcile with him, he was scared. He was afraid that his brother was going to end up taking his life. And so he wrestles with God one night. He wrestles with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord ends up striking in his hip and he had that limp in his, in his uh, hip from, from, from then on and you see that was a sign or a symbol, a permanent sign or symbol to him that for all of his days God had changed his character from the inside out and out of that experience God no longer called him Jacob the deceiver but he gave him a new name Israel which means prince with God that came through that test and then there was Moses who spent 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. He probably thought he was wasting all of those years in his life, but actually God was preparing him as a shepherd, not to be simply a shepherd to sheep, but to, to be a shepherd to Israel because he was going to send him back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. All of these Bible characters learned something and they grew through these times of, of trials and tribulation in, in their lives. Now folks, what James is saying is we don't need to lock in on the circumstance itself. 
But that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We get in a trial or tribulation and, and we just kind of, we kind of focus in on that and we say, woe is me. And we can't lift our eyes past that circumstance. But James is saying, don't lock in on the circumstance, but lock in on God. Let your eyes lift off the circumstance and look at God and learn from God and see what He can do. In other words, what, uh, what James wants us to understand is that God doesn't grow us in some kind of protective little bubble. This week I had to get up at 4 a.m. Monday morning, fly to Memphis and then to Nashville on convention business. Then Tuesday night late, I had to fly through Atlanta. I mean, after all, everybody's got to fly through Atlanta, right? Fly through Atlanta, coming back to Charlotte, we got in about midnight, and on the last leg of the flight, I sat next to a man who turned out to be a very dedicated Christian, and he told me about he and his wife splitting up. Now, he didn't go into details why, and I didn't probe, but he said out of Isaiah, a verse in Isaiah, he felt the Lord impress on him that he was not to give up on the marriage even though the divorce had become final. He said, I waited 13 years, and now we're back together. We've remarried, and he spoke about how much they've both grew, uh, grown and, and learned and matured over the course of that 13 years. God grows us through the hardships of life. And He grows us through the hardships of life so we will be equipped to help other people. Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for permission to sift you as wheat and he's been granted that permission. But I've prayed for you and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. So what God allows in our life after we've come through that time of learning, God wants us to turn around and help other people with what we've learned. And so we need to equip ourselves with a new attitude, James says, so that we'll be perfect and mature, complete, lacking in nothing. He's not talking here about a sinless perfection. The words refer to a stability and a maturity that you didn't possess before. But not only do you need a new attitude, James mentions a second resource that we need when tested. He says we need a humble posture in the midst of trials. Beginning there in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James is a realist. He's just said that God wants to equip us through trial so we'll end up strong and stable and lacking in nothing. But in the midst of the trial, we're still in the pressure cooker, aren't we? And oftentimes, we're short-sighted. So what do we need? We need God's wisdom. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3 says we're not to lean on our own understanding, but we're to trust God in all of our ways. We need God's wisdom because God's not short-sighted. God sees tomorrow. I don't see tomorrow, but God sees tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next and so forth and so on. 
So folks, how foolish I'm going to be if I'm going through a time of difficulty in my life. And I'm not calling on God to try to give me decisions. Because you see, if I rely on my own wisdom and I try to go through that trial in my own resources, you know what? I might make the wrong decision. I may make the wrong decision and mess things all up. And so what I need to do in the midst of the trial is I need to drop to my knees and I need to call upon sovereign God who knows tomorrow and I need to say, God, you know what tomorrow holds and you know what you're trying to do in my life, so help me today to make the decisions that you want me to make for tomorrow. And God's able to do that. I read a story one time, a true story about a pilot. He was flying his little single-engine airplane out west. And he was flying over some mountainous territory with curvy little roads. And as he was looking down, he saw this guy that was so impatient. This guy kept trying to pass this truck that was in front of him. And every time he would get ready to pass this truck, he would move out in the passing lane and another hill would come up or a curve would come up. Or he'd shoot out in the passing lane and he would meet an oncoming car. And so he would have to pull back in behind that truck. And the pilot said, he thought to himself, he said, if only I could enter into communication with that, with the driver of that vehicle. Because from my perspective up here, I can see the road for miles ahead of him and I could let him know when it's safe to pass or not and we could talk and I could communicate with him even when he can't see what's around the next bend. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the opportunity that we have when we go before God in prayer. And so what do we need to do? We need to go before Him. We need to pray. We need to seek His wisdom. And James 5 tells us that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A lot of us could accomplish a whole lot more in life if we only prayed more. As Henry Blackaby said in Experiencing God, God can do uh, more in five minutes in our lives than we can do in the next 50 years. But we need to ask Him. This week I was listening to a sermon by Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. That's where I went to school. And he was speaking to students in chapel and he was talking about prayer. Now Paige is pushing 70 now, but he was telling the story of when he was a brand new young preacher. He was still in school. He was just 16 years old. A minister called him one day from a church in South Texas that was running about 800 at the time. Paige said, you know, a church running 800 now is no big deal, but back in the Stone Ages, that was a mega church. The pastor had heard about this new young preacher and he wanted Paige to come down and preach a revival for him. Paige said, he, he, he said to this minister, he said, sir, let me check my calendar. Let me look here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can come. He said that first Sunday he delivered two gems. He preached the stars down. He thought, Billy Graham, move over. Here I come. That night the minister said to Paige, Paige, you be ready in the morning early because I'm going to come around and pick you up and we're going to run around and we're going to see Dorothy Faye Mendenhall and she's going to pray for you. And Paige said, what in the world is that all about? He said, I was there to preach a revival. I didn't want to just visit shut-ins. And, and, and besides, when we go around and visit shut-ins, usually we pray for them. They don't pray for us. 
But Paige said, not knowing what to expect, I was ready the next morning. He pulled up, blew the horn. I came out and got in his car. And we drove up to this little white frame, simple white frame uh, house, kind of like a little mill house or a farmhouse. And he said, what the minister did next, my daddy told me never to do. He knocked on the door and, and, and he opened that door and he walked right in. My daddy taught me, if you barge into a house, you may be barging out pretty quickly because you never know what you're going to find in there. But he said, we barged right in that house. And he said, then we did something else my daddy told me you never do. He barged straight back to this woman's bedroom. We turned the corner and went into this woman's bedroom who was calling out to us. And he said, that's something else my daddy told me you never do. But that's what we did. And he said, there she was. Dorothy Faye Mendenhall. Laying flat on her back in her bed, crippled up, been laying there for 35 years. The victim of a drunken doctor who delivered her and in the process of delivering her had crushed her neck and her spine. And all she could do was lay flat on her back in bed and have a little bit of use of her arms and her hands and she could write a little bit, though not too well. And the preacher said, Dorothy, this is that young preacher I was telling you about. And I've brought him by this morning so you can pray for him. And, and Paige said after we visited a little while, uh, the pastor said, Okay, Dorothy, we need to run on. There's some other visits we need to make. But could we join hands and pray? And she said, Certainly so. They joined hands and began to pray. Paige said, What happened next? He has no human words to explain it. He said that woman got to praying and it's as though above us a window into heaven opened and, and, and the veil was lifted back and Dorothy Faye Mendenhall reached up and it's like she took hold of the very face of God and God was in that room with us. And he said, I know you can't see God, but I had the unusual sense that God was standing right there in that room with us. And he said, I've got to confess as a 16 year old preacher, I opened my eyes and I turned around to look and see God to find out what he looked like even though I know God is spirit and we can't see him but he said she got done praying and when she got done praying he said Miss Dorothy can I ask a favor of you would you pray that way every single day for me and she said no Paige I won't and he said, well, Miss Dorothy Faye, why in the world will you not pray for me every day like that? And she said, Pastor, would you reach over there uh, on that dresser there and, and hand him my calendar and let him look? She said, Paige, as you open up my calendar, you'll notice in 30-minute segments, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, I've got names of people listed in there that I pray for. And she said, Paige, as far as I know, there's no more room, there's no more spaces. I don't have time to pray for you. And he said, Dorothy Faye, if I could find a blank space in your calendar, could I write my name in and you'd pray for me? She said, why, yes, Paige, you can do that. And he said, I flipped over to my birthday. And he said, wouldn't you know it, there was a space in there. And I wrote my name in there so big and bold she could have seen it from four rooms away. 
He said every day for the next 20 years of her life, a few days after his birthday, he'd get a little note in the mail and he could tell it was in her chicken scratch writing. She'd say, Paige, I prayed for you today. Paige said when we stepped out of that house and we walked out of that house and we were walking to the car, he, he was so dumbfounded, he was so stunned. He said, Pastor, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. And, and the pastor said, Paige, I want to tell you something. We baptized 150 new converts in our church last year. And 102 of them we can directly trace to the prayers of Dorothy Faye Mendenhall. And he said, not only that, but five of them, five of them gave testimony to our church that they didn't even know the woman. They were just driving by her house. And all of a sudden, God just deeply impressed on them that they needed to turn in and they needed to go in and visit whoever was inside of that home. And so they turned their car in her driveway and they knocked on her door and heard her yell to come in. They got inside and she called them to come down into uh, down the hall into the bedroom. And they said, we turned into that bedroom and they said, ma'am, we don't know you and you don't know us and we, I don't even know why I'm here today, but God so strongly impressed on my heart that I needed to come in here and see you. And he said, Paige, those five gave testimony that she laid right there in that bed and she personally led those five to faith in Christ herself. Prayer's powerful. Folks, if you think God can do something like that through prayer, don't you think that God can also use prayer in your life to give you the wisdom you need as you're going through trials? Here's a promise in verse 5 as we pray. He says, God gives generously. But while there's a promise, I want you to notice also there's a requirement. We've got to trust. We've got to ask in faith without doubting. If we doubt, he says, we're like the surf of the sea that is tossed. The surf here that is tossed is the same word used of the disciples. Remember when the disciples got out on the Sea of Galilee and that storm came up and they woke up Jesus because they were afraid they were about to perish. Same word here. James says that person is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all of his ways and God's not going to give him anything. Now folks, that's certainly a strong warning. What in the world is James talking about? Is he saying there can never be any questions of any kind in my mind as I pray? No, that's not what James is talking about. You see, James is addressing a very specific occurrence here. He's talking about the person who's really not sure that he truly wants God's plan. He's in a trial. And he's got a plan. He thinks he's got it figured out, but he suspects God's got a plan too. He'd like to know God's plan. I mean, after all, if God's got a plan, God's plan would be nice to know, wouldn't it? But once he finds out how God wants this trial to end, if he doesn't much like God's plan, he'd kind of like to have his own plan to fall back on. And so he's saying, God, show me. I want to know for the sake of conversation what you want. And, and I want to see if your plan is to my liking. And if your plan is to my liking, I think I'll do it. Otherwise, I think I'll just stick with my plan. James says there's no way God's going to honor that kind of praying. 
God knows what's in your heart, and if that's what's in your heart, you might as well not even waste time dropping to your knees. And so in the midst of trials, we need to pray and we need to ask for God's wisdom. But as we do, there needs to be a firm resolve in our hearts that if God leads us, whichever direction God leads us in, we're going to follow. Sir, what about if you're praying about a new job and you need wisdom? What if God calls you to step down from a very secure position and God wants you to step out in faith in a new direction? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to leave your comfort zone if God calls you to leave your comfort zone? And are you willing to pray in that direction? Young person. Let's say you're dating somebody that you've become very smitten with and every day you see that you're growing more and more in love with that person. Are you willing to take that before God and say, God, if this is the person you have for me, I sure would like it. But God, if he's not the one, if she's not the one, would you go ahead and get them out of my life right now? Are you willing to pray with that kind of resolve? Any issue in your life, are you willing to pray and ask God, seek God's wisdom, God's insight on this situation, and then pray with the firm resolve that whatever He leads you to do, you're going to go that direction. You see, we've got to have that kind of resolve. God, you direct my steps. In whatever direction you take my steps, God, that's the way I'm going to go. A third thing we need. Now, I'm going to be real quick here. Don't look at your watch. We need a fresh perspective on life because of trials. Look at what he says in verse 9 and following. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James points out here that rich and poor alike are going are to face trials. There's no exceptions. There's no exemptions. And the poor can end up standing and the rich can end up falling. And so don't you go boasting. Trials have a way of helping us get a whole new perspective on life and to realize what's really important and where our values really should be. We need to hang on to things of the world very loosely. A poor man can go through trials and his hope and strength can end up being renewed. He can come out of that with a whole new hope. That trial can humble him. He learns so much and he may not have one more penny to his name, but he emerges rich in faith. He's got a whole new position in life. A rich man, on the other hand, also goes through trials. 
His money's not going to spare him from trials. Through that trial, he might learn how fleeting the things of the world really are. There he has been trusting in money, but through that trial, he might get saved. Look at the analogy James gives. Here were these beautiful Judean countryside flowers and they would shoot up overnight and dot the landscape and they were so beautiful to go out in the morning and look at. But that desert sun can bake down on them during the day and they can be as dry and dead as a doornail by nightfall. Here's a rich man. He can have all the security in the world, or so he thinks. And by the end of the day, he can be gone. He can even even be dead. His money can't buy him one more day. And he realizes that and learns that too late. But here's another rich man. On the other hand, he learns. He gets saved. Look at what James says about that here. He can glory in that humiliation that God took him through because through that period of humiliation, God opened his eyes and he got saved. James is saying regardless of your station in life, God can show you how rich you are even if you're poor or he can show you how poor you are even if you're rich God can use trials to shake you up to what's really important in life and then verse 12 points out the reward on the other side you take a rich man or a poor man you let him go through a trial you let him get saved you let him grow in the Lord and he's more conformed to the image of Christ he perseveres and he learns to lean on God and when he dies it's not over he goes to glory he stands before God he receives his reward Folks, not only can God bless you right now through that trial, but He can bless you and reward you one day as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you respond poorly to that trial now, you're going to miss the blessing now, and you're going to miss the blessing later. But you can have the blessing now, and you can have the blessing later. You can have it now, and have it later, or you can miss it now, and also miss it later. How do we respond to trials? What do we let God do in us through those things? Do they open our eyes? Do we get saved? If we're saved, do we grow even more? Back to those Navy SEALs a moment. You know how many of them make it through that program? Just half of them. Just half of them. The other half quit. It's the same with us. Trials can either make you or break you. Because of trials, you can either turn to God through that trial or you can turn away from God through that trial. Which is it going to be with you? How are you going to face trials? Man's ways? Or God's ways. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me as our musicians come to lead us. 
It may be that I'm addressing somebody here today that's going through the valley. You're a believer, you know you're saved, but you want to come to this altar and just say, God help me. My resources are so weak and so inadequate. I I can't handle this on my own. I need you to teach me and show me and give me your wisdom. There may even be somebody you want to bring to this altar and, and pray for them this morning if you know they're going through a valley. Somebody else here, maybe you're going through a valley and and you know there's never been a time in your life that you've been saved. You're trying to handle that situation on your own. And you're coming to find out a little bit more each day. You can't do it. And you see that you need a relationship with Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that. You step out and come forward. Don't you worry about what somebody else around you is going to think or do. Don't worry about that. Your soul's at stake. You realize that? Eternities may hang in the balance here today. Somebody else, a family that maybe needs a church home where Christians can come around you and pray and you can fellowship with them and gain strength from that. You step out too. I'd like to talk to you about that.